your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope. Brought to you by the Sensory Learning Center with host and mother of a recovering child with autism, Betsy Hicks. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Betsy and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Betsy Hicks. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. Today I'm going to be talking about the autism epidemic and how its prevalence and the way it's been increasing for this past decade has new services for autism that are available like never before. But let's not forget those pioneers, the doctors, the researchers, and parents who had no point of reference, no chat rooms, no Internet, and certainly no medical support. One of those pioneers is my guest today. Her name is Dr. Cindy Snyder, and she is a board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. But in 1995, her sons, Derek and Devin, were diagnosed with autism. And Dr. Snyder focused her energy on solving the question of where did this come from and how can I fix it. In 1996, Dr. Snyder started Southwest Autism Research Center. And she will discuss with us today her reasons for resigning in 2002 from this organization that she founded. In 2003, Dr. Snyder opened the Center for Autism Research and Education, and that same year opened a nonprofit organization known as the CARE Foundation. Dr. Snyder will share with us today how her practice helps her patients prioritize both medical and the therapy-type treatments. Welcome, Dr. Snyder, to the show. Thank you. I um, would first like to start with the Southwestern, the Southwest Autism Research Center, and um, I, I've known you for a, a many, many years, and I, and I knew you when you were so passionate with that group, and how you really started that from the ground up. Can you talk about that experience? Um, sure. My husband calls it our fourth child <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, you know we both really put our heart and soul in it. Um, him, in the sense of giving me the support to do something, to go out on a limb, to put our personal finances on the on, on the line too, to get something started that I truly believed in because, um, you know, when my children were diagnosed, I looked around and I tried to see what was out there and, of course, everybody said do speech, do OT, do ABA and a lot of people said don't do ABA but, right. <laughs> you know, it seemed like the, you know, we went, we did um, everything that seemed reasonable and a few things that maybe aren't even reasonable. <laughs> and uh, um, we we did the best we could for about a year, but in the meantime, I was looking around and seeing what kind of research there was, and the only research at the time was genetics research and neuroimaging, uh, things like spec scans, uh, functional MRIs were beginning to uh, to be looked into, things like that. And I could see the value in all of that, but I couldn't see how it was really going to help my children. And so what I wanted to do was support um, uh, the people in current research but do it in a better way, in what I envisioned to be a better way anyway, because, um, well, I remember participating in some of the early genetic studies across the country at very uh, well-known universities and finding things, for example, that such as we would never, ever be told the results of our children's testing. And 
their uh, reason for that was they didn't budget for genetic counseling. And I thought, well, this is insane because, you know, we're giving up hours of our time and we're allowing people to draw blood on our children. We are participating in all kinds of psychological and physical tests and we would never gain anything from it because the results would all be kept, you know, secret from us. And I said, well, at a minimum, are you going to tell people if uh, you do a fragile X screen whether or not that test is positive? Because, of course, in these early studies, they were recruiting um, ch- uh, children from families where more than one child was affected. Right. So, of course, in those families, the chances of fragile X would be higher. Um, and they said, no, we, we don't even have allowances for that. And I found that so unethical and so disturbing that I really wanted to do things in a better way. So what I've tried to do is look at things, um, the type of research studies that I prioritized were were studies that potentially had some answers um, that could relate to how we treat these children now. And I've been especially interested in the problems with their immune system and their gastrointestinal systems and um, trying to see how these all link to neurological disease. And so that's really what I have tried to focus on through the years. So when you started this up, your, your fourth child, and, <laughs> and as some children do, it rebelled. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that experience? Well, I think we did some beautiful work in the beginning. Uh, we worked with a geneticist in Rome um, uh, Antonio Persico, who is, I think, one of the geniuses in the field. And he had some wonderful ideas as to why some kids would be sort of the canaries in the mine, the children that would have a genetic vulnerability to environmental toxins. And what he's proven is um, that, well, many, many things, but among them, kids with autism on average are less able to clear um, environmental toxins such as um, organic phosphorus organophosphate pesticides, and he's also proven that this and and other things can relate to how the brain actually develops and how we fight viruses and so forth, so it's an intricate weave of how multiple genes interact with the environment. Um, So we did some wonderful work with that. We also did some um, very exciting work with secretin, which I know a lot of people today haven't even heard of, but um, I have witnessed miracles happen with secretin infusions in certain children. And I know that there's a subgroup where it's absolutely a viable treatment. Uh, we weren't able to prove that in clinical studies, uh, unfortunately, because the problem with most research in autism is we can't define how many types of autism we have. And when you lump everybody with that diagnosis into one study, some will benefit and some will not. And if it benefits you know, 5% of the kids, it could be a miracle for that 5%, but if it doesn't benefit 95%, then the study is going to be interpreted as a failure. And uh, so we had many things like that happen. I think we've, we were on to some important information, but um, there were obstacles certainly along the way um, in defining autism as a, um, as a whole spectrum or a syndrome, not just one entity. But um, I guess to get back to your question, uh, we brought in a very gifted um, postdoc um, psychologist to do our psychological testing because the other thing that I found in research that was being done is that there wasn't very strict psychological testing. Um, anybody who claimed to have a diagnosis of autism was let in, and most of the studies were muddied by also including kids with PDD-NOS 
and Asperger's and the other things on the spectrum of autism, but I think there's more heterogeneity in those groups. We, we're looking at a broader and broader um, phenotype, which just means, you know, these kids don't have the same condition, really. They could have gotten to that point by all different kind of causes. So one of the, the priorities, I think, in research is to do the highest quality research to be sure you define your study group as strictly as possible. And to do that, you have to do psychological testing. Um, the person that we um, brought in was a very gifted um, psychologist, and the commitment we had made to her was um, to super to so that she could get her um, postdoctoral uh, training was to be supervised by a psychologist. And so one of the co-founders um, had a psychologist in his office, and she agreed to do the supervision, but. At some point, the board of SARC decided to withdraw that um, supervision, and that left our postdoc unable to finish her postdoc training, and she actually had to transfer to Stanford and repeat an entire year uh, in order to do that. So we really um, uh, did not live up to our commitment to her, and I was furious about that, among many other things. Um, so... Um, one of the major contributors also is the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, and I found that to be a conflict of interest, and I, I was vocal about that as well. So I really got to the point where it just made more sense for me to start from scratch and do things the way I envisioned that they should be done, and that's what I've done here at CARE. So did it, it – obviously it was a very, very hard time for you when you walked away from that, and, and but starting up anew and being able to do it your way has to have tremendous rewards to you. And with with you doing – now with both organizations, because you have um, both the Center for Autism Research and Education and the CARE Foundation, um, are you doing things a little differently than you did before <laughs> to make sure that this doesn't happen again? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm trying to learn from my mistakes. We all need to learn from our mistakes. That's so hard. Um, I, I guess I'm an idealist. I think that things should be done a certain way, and I am a, a very honest and straightforward person. If I say something, my word has meaning, and I just feel like you have to support your staff. You have to support the other collaborators in your research, and you have to be open to all possibilities, both popular theories and unpopular theories. And I can't deal with politics. And ironically, when we were small over at Sark, we didn't have to deal with politics. But the larger an organization becomes, and, you know, I can see this in multiple organizations across the country, the larger it becomes, the more you answer to uh, mainstream ideas and, um, uh, and practices. And uh, more and more of the other organizations are, Doing the kind of research that was out there before that I wasn't happy with. Sure. I mean, it's it's a it's a good start, but you can't end there. And I think we have to be open to some serious research into uh, vaccine safety and thimerosal issues, as well as um, other other um, environmental toxins that have affected this population, this generation. That that's a. I'm really glad that you're talking about this, and and we. We have just a short time, about a minute or so until our break. Um, but something I, I really want to talk to today, maybe you can just touch on it in just a few seconds, is so many different organizations and different um, supports 
for autism are pointing all the arrows on thimerosal. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite uh, analogies towards this is the parent who's doing something with chelation and then giving their child Skittles, yeah. you know, 24 <laughs> hours a day. With Kool-Aid. <laughs> with Kool-Aid. Or soda, yeah. And, you In- know, and having <laughs> pesticide everything and, yeah. live, you know, living on on, uh, on goldfish crackers. I, I, I think... I really want to, when we get back from break, let's first start talking about that environment and how important everything in the environment has to be altered other than just the mercury piece. Great. Um, We'll be right back with Dr. Cindy Snyder. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies, and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the Sensory Learning Program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. Omega Institute is the country's leading center for holistic studies. Now you can experience selected workshops from Omega in the comfort of your own home. Join us for a live web broadcast with John Friend, the founder of Anasara Yoga. In this dynamic workshop, we learn a Hatha Yoga system that is a celebration of the heart and looks for the good in all people and all things. To find out more about our live web broadcast, log on to our website, www.eomega.org. That's www.eomega.org. Or call us at 800-944-1001. That's 800-944-1001. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Hi, this is Mark Victor Hansen. You know me for Chicken Soup of the Soul, the One Minute Millionaire, and Cracking the Millionaire Code. And what I want you to know is that if you want to have rip-roaringly good health, listen to Health Crusades by my friend John Farley. Tune in to Health Crusades with John Farley every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Cindy Snyder, and we it, she has so much to 
to teach all of you that are listening, and I want her to share as much of that as she can. We left during break asking, kind of, I was asking Cindy the question um, pretty much on, you know, a lot of a lot of the arrows point towards thimerosal and mercury, and I certainly don't question at all that that is a huge player in the autism epidemic. But it is not the only environmental toxin that your children face. Can you talk a little bit about that, Cindy? Um, yeah, actually, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk about that because although um, clearing the body of toxins is definitely a part of any good um, protocol that, that would be created for an individual, is certainly not the only thing that we do, and mercury is not the only toxin that we find because when I do prepare patients nutritionally for more in-depth uh, biomedical intervention, when we finally get to that point, um, we often see mercury, arsenic, lead, cadmium, organophosphate, pesticides, just many, many uh, environmental issues and layered into the fact that most of the kids have inadequate diets. And so, of course, my approach is probably very similar to yours in that step one for me is clean up the diet and then clean up the child's environment in general um, because, you know, these kids cannot get away with the American diet. I don't think anybody should be eating that way, but these kids just simply can't eat that way and be healthy. And so would you say that gluten and casein is only a piece, that there's so much more to it? Definitely, definitely, because I I tell my patients you can eat Spam and drink Coca-Cola and be (laughs) gluten-free and dairy-free. And and, Skittles. And Skittles, definitely Skittles in the lunchbox. Um, and you, so that is such a, a narrow view of it because many times people will talk to me and say, well, we tried that diet, you know, and, and it didn't work for my child. And then you really delve into what the child was eating and you see that, you know, they had food dyes, they had corn syrup, they had all these other allergens in their, in their diet. And the child who has, especially a child with gastrointestinal symptoms, is very likely to have multiple food allergies, not just gluten, not just dairy. And so you have to investigate all that and get the refined, um, you know, carbs down to a limited uh, range. And and for most of my patients, I I, I make, I give them some tough advice. I I usually say I would prefer that your child be gluten, dairy, corn, and soy free and eliminate all artificial sweeteners, all food dyes, um, all MSG, um, and so and, and eat whenever possible organic produce and drink filtered water. I don't think most of these kids can even get away with drinking juice, except in small quantities. You know, sometimes you have to send that. For the supplements, you might have to use that, but that's the only value I see for juice, <laughs> unless it's freshly squeezed from organic fruit when you actually have a nutritional uh, content. Yeah, and it's and it's the antioxidants are still alive. Yeah. I do not agree with you more. And and the corn and soy piece is something that mm-hmm. um, it really sends a lot of patients over the edge. Oh yeah. As well, because that and it's and it's very difficult because I don't have as much research as I do with gluten and casein to, for the soy and corn. Although Dr. Yeah. Kayla Daniels' book, The Whole Soy Story, is an amazing read, mm. and she's been my guest a couple times. Um, on how dangerous soy is, mm-hmm. but the corn is a huge one. And just like what you said about, you know, they go gluten free and then they're <laughs> eating um, Gorilla Munch cereal yes, twenty four hours a day, day. and yeah. you know that, and then they're, and then they're drinking soy milk with it. Yes. Um, they can get worse yes. in many ways. 
Yeah, and that's the the sad thing is when when my children were diagnosed, there was nobody out there giving advice. Now it's just the opposite. There's everybody telling you what to do, and some of them don't have a strong foundation for their advice. And or they mean very well, or maybe it worked for their child, but it won't. It may or may not work for your child. Yeah. And so some children are just more sensitive than others and have to um, be even more strict with their diet, at least in the beginning. Because and the other thing that I have to make sure everybody understands is that if you don't rotate the foods that are left, you will your child will probably develop all new allergies, and then you'll be in an even more difficult situation. So if you're not doing anything to address health and you just go gluten and dairy free, you're destined to fail because unless you're really lucky, your child's going to develop new allergies right. and then exactly. you won't have anything left. <laughs> exactly. Would you would you say that um, going back to when, now, how, how old are um, Derek and Devin? Um, Derek is 15 and Devin is 14 and they have a younger brother, Colin, who's just turned 12. Okay. Now my son's 13. So we're going back quite back. a few years here, too. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a little behind you, but knowing Not what far. our services and what our availability was like <laughs> mm-hmm. back in those early years, mm-hmm. we had very little choices. But today, parents have so many choices. Mm-hmm. They're confused. In some ways, it's more difficult. It's very There's a difficult. lot of guilt. There's a lot of overspending of money on promised treatments. Mm-hmm. So... Where would you say is the place that a parent needs to start? Mm-hmm. Um, that well, the the first thing I would do is um, try to find a very experienced phys- physician to help, because you can do a lot on your own while you're waiting for that appointment. Because many people have waiting lists and so forth, but while you're waiting, you're going to want to take the gluten and dairy out of your child's diet, if at all possible. If you're not sure what you're doing and you're confused about it, we don't expect you to um, be able to manage it all on your own. Just do the best you can. We'll clean up the minor issues uh, when you get here. But uh, certainly to um, think about what your whole family eats um, because for most of these children, you really can't have the other food in the house because they will crave it, they will want it, and it will be a constant battle. And there will be many, many times when they steal food from a sibling or find it in the cupboard. And, you know, you can lock it up any way you like. You know, the kids, in my experience, the kids are usually going to find it. Um, So I, I can't tell people how to live their lives, but I can certainly give strong advice to, for the most part, eliminate these things from the house because... We would all be healthier if we varied our diet more, and the things that we eat too much of in this in this culture are you know at the top of the list gluten and dairy and you know all these refined carbohydrates in general so um cleaning up the diet and by that I mean eating more fruits more vegetables um, organic, very it's very important to buy organic if your child is given um, organic produce and organic meats they're one sixth as, as toxic, uh, they, they have one-sixth the chemical load as a child who eats regular food from an ordinary grocery store. And if you think about long-term consequences such as autoimmune disease, heart disease, um, cancer, you could be changing your child, child's entire life and, of course, you're enhancing brain development. And there are not really good studies along these lines, but it's really just common sense. It's very hard to get anybody to fund a food study. <laughs> Yeah. There's not a lot of money to be made from selling no. a lot of kale. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, 
also it's, it takes activists like yourself to to, mm-hmm. to get out there and say, you know, it's important to do this mm-hmm. organic green piece. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so then cleaning up the diet, real important step. Mm-hmm. Um, a big question that's frequently asked is we, we, we know what it's like um, with a lot of the patients that budget is so tremendously tight. Right. And they don't know where they should put mm-hmm. their money. And mm-hmm. frequently I find them putting it in a spot of somebody who's giving them a quick promise because they right. feel that they'll get everything from that. Right. Um, where do you recommend kind of allocating the, the funds? Mm. Well, I think in the first year after diagnosis, um, it's it's important to do some medical testing. Um, I try to use families' finances wisely, and I'm as conservative as I can be when it comes to ordering tests. And, you know, over the years you figure out you can go with your best guess and you need fewer and fewer tests. But I think in the beginning at baseline it's wise to um, do some basic testing such as plasma amino acids, um, if the family can afford it, some genetic testing, um, do some mineral testing to see nutritionally what the child most needs and sometimes it makes a lot of sense to test the immune system um, because some of these kids that are sick all the time over and over again getting ear infections and GI infections um, and just not recovering easily from their illnesses, they they often have an, uh, an immune deficiency, uh, the inability to make certain antibodies or they've got some chronic um, infections, whether it's viral or bacterial, uh, you know, something like that, or... And a layer, and oftentimes on top of that, they also have multiple food allergies and sensitivities. So those kind of tests for me are are very important in the beginning. And then some of them never have to be repeated. Some have to be repeated occasionally. And I think once you establish your baseline, that gives you something to always look back at. And when I when I see patients, I go back to some of the baseline testing uh, because even though a lot has changed over the time in between, we know that that's what your child might revert back to if treatment is withdrawn or if they, you know, go back to eating what they were eating before and not taking vitamins, things like that. Um, So I always want to look back at, okay, their baseline metabolism was like this and it wasn't good. (laughs) And so I think you can learn a lot by looking at um, how a child uses their amino acids, what minerals they tend to waste in their urine and need to be supplemented with and, um, just in general, are they prone to yeast overgrowth? Are they prone to food allergies? Um, so these are really important clues. And then once you build them up nutritionally, you can look into the whole issue of toxicity and whether or not there's lead or mercury or some other toxin on board that needs to be cleaned out of the body. Very good. And I want to, um, with that being said, and that has been an important start to where they're going to begin and progress in their treatment biomedically. When we get back from our break, let's talk about where you would start on therapy levels because Dr. Snyder is an expert in many areas. (laughs) So we're going to hit that next. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Cindy Snyder. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute, and the main issue to sum everything up is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, 
who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. The challenges we face day-to-day create physical, intellectual, spiritual, and emotional tensions, which affect the way we feel. Our body sends us signals, pain, stress, worry, that originate in how we think, feel, or behave. We're all a little crazy. Host, clinical social worker and therapist, Debbie Benching, and her expert guests look at the various influences that mold professional and public views of mental health, treatments, and methods to achieve emotional well-being. Learn to manage difficult circumstances in life and relationships with integrity and confidence. Express emotion more clearly and gain depth and choices that lead to mental and physical health in your relationship and your life. Tune into We're All a Little Crazy with Debbie Benching, broadcasting each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're All a Little Crazy. Clarity, healing, and change through personal growth. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Betsy. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Cindy Snyder and talking about her wonderful work she has done so many things, and she knows so much. Such a great resource. So we've talked about the obvious medical piece very briefly. We're, I'd like to go back to that a little bit. But I want to talk about those who are trying to know where to start on a therapy level. Um, it is. This goes back to, Dr. Snyder, what I was saying earlier about um, so many promises, so many people saying you've got to do this, this is what's going to be the miracle for you. And I am sure you've seen a lot of things that have been miracles for many people, but um, to know exactly what that is is sometimes a crapshoot. Other times <laughs> there's things that are more evidence that leads to, well, let's see, this child had uh, no oxygen at birth, maybe they'd be a good person for hyperbarics. You know, other, other, there are other clues that will give you some ideas as to who will help, what therapies will help. Um, my son, as an example, failed miserably in ABA because he was so, so sick, and he couldn't sit still for a minute. So for him, uh, floor time was tremendous. So, you know, it's like everybody has their thing. And, and how a parent, and I hear this so often, I just don't know where to begin and who to believe. Please sure. offer them some guidance right now. <laughs> well, I think the, the physicians that have the best success are the ones who take time to obtain a history. And everybody has forms, you know, that they have you fill out, but then you wonder, do they read the forms? Um, because you can't, you can't have a cookie-cutter approach. Right. Um, I, I take about a two-hour history on the first visit, 
And sometimes the parents are taken aback because they say, well, gee, you didn't spend that much time with my child because they're used to seeing a psychologist or somebody like that who's going to do some testing. And I do, you know, refer out for that when necessary, like necessary. But I tell people that, to me, I'm, you can make a diagnosis of autism five aisles down in the grocery store. It's not a difficult diagnosis <laughs> for someone who's familiar with it. Um, I, the difficult part is figuring out how a child became autistic. Yes. Um, because sometimes there are many, many variables to tease out that then give us clues as to what treatment will be appropriate. So if you're referring to the um, the kind of therapies such as speech and OT and music and ABA and so forth, um, those are all important and they're all helpful. It's just that if your child is medically ill, you can't expect an ill child to benefit very much from therapy. And that's exactly what happened to us the first year when we really had nothing to do but the basic mainstream um, therapies because my children would make games and lose them and make them and lose them over and over again. And it was because they were always becoming ill. And they had, um, in their case, they they were getting frequent ear infections and they had chronic, horrific diarrhea. And um, they were just very medically fragile children. And it you can't teach a sick child... I mean, you can make yourself go to work when you're sick and you'll get through the day, but you won't be productive and you won't be giving it your best. And these poor kids are asked to do that on a daily basis, sit through this therapy or that therapy and behave while you're at it and don't do any of your self-stimulatory behaviors, even though your stomach hurts and your head hurts and you're lacking anything your brain needs to work properly nutritionally. Um it's too much to expect from them. Their lives are full of stress. Their sensory input is distorted. You have to correct that to the best of your ability before you can expect real gains with any kind of therapy, no matter what you choose. And in the meantime, you can do a lot of things with sensory integration to calm their overactive nervous system. So one of the things I would recommend is finding an OT early on who's very um, experienced with sensory integration and just concentrating on things like that as you enhance the health of your child because until your child feels well, the other therapies don't have much of a chance of working. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I I do so strongly believe that. But what about the therapies that sometimes offer ways to calm the immune system or there's a lot of there's a lot that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Really, when you're looking at ways to calm the immune system, you have to be working on the immune system. I mean, you really have to be right. at, the, at the forefront of working out what is, like you said, what causes this immune system to be off. And um, it, it's not really in relation to what, you know, as much of what they're seeing or what they're hearing. And the sensory piece, though, is... So tremendous. I mean, when I think about how sick my son was, and the only happiness he ever felt was when he was in his swing. I mean, wow. That was the one, mm-hmm. or rocking. Uh, that, those were the, the two things that kept him going. Um, it's hmm. it's just, it, it's an important thing that I think parents need to, to hear is that get your child well, because I spent a tremendous amount of money on therapies that um, it went out the window. And I know what it's like to be a parent, and they tell you that there is this window that your child is can actually speaking. And if they're not speaking by age five or seven or such, whatever they might call it, they're not going to speak at all. And at least in my experience, that's tremendously not true. 
I mean, yeah. my son has really started his verbal language this year, and he's 13 years old. Wow. And he, uh, you know, now says the Pledge of Allegiance, sings many songs, and uh-huh. he's uh, really coming alive verbally, but he's 13 years old. And, that's and beautiful. And who, who would think that that's an option to many parents? I guess w- when they're scrambling so much, Dr. Snyder, um, how do you kind of put them in perspective as to, you know, Certainly, you have your own very important story to to go to, but you know what what they need to do and, and how they need to approach the attitude of autism. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think that you know we all feel that pressure about the window of opportunity closing for language development and for brain development in general. But the beautiful thing is, you have to remember that even a person who has a traumatic head injury or a stroke is going to be able to recover to either partially or wholly. Um, and so there's always the opportunity to repair or to reroute um, uh, sensory information. And so that's what we have to do. We have to give the brain the building blocks to heal. And high at the top of the list is enhancing pathways called methylation pathways. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply, you know, to make it as simple as possible, that has to do with how we use B12 and folic acid. Because some people can use the ordinary form of folic acid or the ordinary form of B12 and do just fine with it, but most children with autism uh, can't, and that is critical for making every single new cell in the body, and it's critical for laying down the myelin along the nerve cells, which is sort of the insulation that allows um, impulses to travel accurately along the nerve, Um, and so unless you give the brain the building blocks to build and to heal, you're only going to get so far. And so whenever you start that process, at any age, there's improvement. And so to me, that's first and foremost, is make sure those pathways are running correctly. And you can do that in a simple way by doing plasma amino acids when a person is fasting. But if it's a difficult case, it's helpful to do some genetic testing to see which genes in particular are are the weaker form. Uh, but with or without that kind of testing, you can usually get some very good results because some kids respond beautifully to B12 injections or a special kind of folic acid that's more active than what would be in their um, in their cereals and things like that. Because the thing is, folic acid is in green leafy vegetables, and most of these children are refusing vegetables, among other things. And even if they're eating them, which is rare, how much are they absorbing because of their bowel issues and on top of that, genetically, how were they, uh, what is their metabolism like? Can they even use it? Because time and time again, I find out that these kids were the canaries in the mine because they have a higher than average need for certain vitamins or certain minerals, and they're not getting that in their diet, and what they do manage to eat is going right through them because their bowel is not healthy. So you have to fix all those problems, and at the same time, beyond, you know, in the search for the best therapists around, But I think, you know, to do all the basic therapies in the beginning is fine, um, especially, as I said, the sensory integration. But I wouldn't invest a lot of money into therapies until you you get your child to a point where they're not sick all the time and they're not, you know, actually it's fair to expect them to concentrate and to to participate. That's great. Great. Well said. So say that you do have your your child is at that point and they Mm -hmm. are feeling well. 
Um, and then once again, you're still dealing with the many choices and, of course, the school <laughs> situations and you know what district and how to deal with IEPs and all those other pieces. And I know that you helped run a school for a while. Right. Um, where Where is a good place? Do you feel that – is there any one particular therapy that you feel that all children benefit from? Let's start with that. Mm. Uh, well, I think sensory integration is absolutely outstanding. I think music therapy is very good for many children because that's an area of the brain that seems to be much less impaired than the language areas. And so many kids start to sing before they actually speak, and they can sing entire songs before they can say a word or a phrase or a sentence. Um, and so, and it's another way to teach them language because music is still language. And it's an outlet for expression, too, because many of these kids are musically gifted and they can express themselves in that way. And it's a, an enjoyable pastime. So I, I really do believe that that's a, uh, an important therapy that even at entry level, um, it's very calming to the nervous system. If you have a good therapist sure. and if they choose the activities wisely. Um, so those are really fantastic. And I think later, for us anyway, and I see it over and over again with patients, speech therapy wasn't effective until we did ABA because our kids just couldn't process um, speech therapy the way it's traditionally presented to a child that just has an isolated language delay. Because these kids, um, I remember Portia Iverson a long time ago said that our, our children are not unable to learn, they're unavailable to learn. Oh. And that was so well said because that's exactly how I looked at my children. It's like they are brilliant in so many ways, but they had a short attention span, they were constantly ill, and, they, you know, it was so hard to reach them. And so ABA taught us ways to teach them in, in tiny little parcels of time and to present the material in a way that they would be successful. And, again, I mean, like every therapy, there are gifted therapists and there are therapists who just don't have a clue. They may have a degree. They may have credentials, but you either have the gift or you don't, and many just simply don't. And they might be great with other children with other diagnoses, but to be really good with these children, you have to have a knack for, you know, getting their attention, holding it as long as you can, and getting the most out of them while you have their attention. So for us, that was really helpful. And as you said, you know, the, the things at home, having OT one hour a week is not going to make any difference for any child, in my opinion. Right. You have to understand what you can implement in your house on a daily basis multiple times a day. And it was the same for our children, as you just described for your son. We got more language out of them when they were in a swing or when we were swinging them in a blanket or twirling them around, you know, roughhousing than we could ever get at a table and chairs. And so, you know, if you look at any one therapy such as ABA, there's all kinds of ways to do it, and I can't say as a blanket statement ABA is the way to go because there's some people I would never refer to um, and who do ABA and others who just do it brilliantly. Right, and I agree with you, though. Sensory integration is a great way to go. Okay, we have to take another break. We'll be right back and conclude our show with Dr. Cindy Snyder. Don't go away. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. We had a wonderful experience in our trip to the Sensory Learning Institute. And the main issue, to sum everything up, is that we went there with a child who was out of control and hyper, 
who had severe sensory issues and autistic tendencies and we brought home a child who was vastly different. We brought home a child who plays with me and talks to me and looks in my eyes and tells me he loves me. The goal and focus of the sensory learning program is to enable the central nervous system to better process sensory information by simultaneously stimulating visual, auditory, and vestibular systems with light, sound, and motion. By challenging these three sensory systems to work together and adapt to multi-sensory input, this intervention often improves speech, perception, understanding, social interaction, coordinated movement, and the ability to learn. We invite all parents interested in sensory learning program for a child to complete the confidential assessment on our website at www.sensorylearning.com. Omega Institute is the country's leading center for holistic studies. Now you can experience selected workshops from Omega in the comfort of your own home. Join us for a live web broadcast with John Friend, the founder of Anasara Yoga. In this dynamic workshop, we learn the Hatha Yoga system that is a celebration of the heart and looks for the good in all people and all things. To find out more about our live web broadcast, log on to our website, www.eomega.org. That's www.eomega.org. Or call us at 800-944-1001. That's 800-944-1001. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Betsy. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Cindy Snyder and talked about many different types of treatments and working with um, her patients with autism as well as her own two sons. Um, Dr. Snyder, you've talked a lot about genetics today. Uh, and can you talk a little bit more about the type of genetic testing that you um, like to do for your patients? Sure, absolutely. Um, and again, this gets to be exclusive kind of testing, so I never insist on it. I always present it to my patients as being optional. But there are various labs across the country and, in fact, across the world who are able to look at specific genes. And the ones that seem to be the most important are the ones that allow us to use certain vitamins. Uh, for example, can you take folic acid from the diet and use and convert it through several steps into the type of folic acid your cells need? Can you get by with ordinary B12, or do you need to actually do B12 injections with a special form called methyl B12 or methylcobalamin? And there are certain genes you can test to determine this. Also, if there's a family history of Alzheimer's, you might want to check into that kind of testing. If there, um, if you have a suspicion, um, well, it, it depends on family history as well. I mean, there's other things like sometimes there's bipolar disorder or a lot of cancer in the family or things like that that might lead you might lead you one direction or another. And uh, so there's there's a few labs out there, and I think it's going to be a growing field that are offering oh maybe 30 or 40 genes you can test in a panel ranging anywhere from like $500 to $750 for the testing. And I find that especially helpful when we have um, kids who don't respond the way you would predict that they would respond to one treatment or another. 
in terms of biomedical treatment, some of the kids that have the higher levels of self-stimulatory behaviors, for example, I think have a variant of PKU. And that's phenylketonuria, which every newborn is screened for. But the thing is, there are variants of PKU where the baby would pass that newborn screening test and yet later in life or maybe even early in life um, develop problems because of a high ammonia level. And um, it's just it's extremely hard to get an accurate ammonia level unless you're drawing the lab in a hospital um, and they do the testing stat on site because ammonia degrades. And, and so for me, in a clinical setting in the office, it's just not possible for me to get an accurate ammonia level. But I can guess by some of the children's behavior who has these high levels, and those kids really have a problem with uh, certain pathways. And sometimes we have to modify their diet to deal with that problem because, um, and there's some very exciting research in Japan and Sweden that I think is going to lead to some viable treatment for our children in the near future dealing with these PKU variants. And um, so the, the priority is bring down their ammonia levels. And the way that most of us in this field begin to do that is we make the bowel as healthy as possible because some of our ammonia comes from the gut in our, uh, the bacteria in our gut. And so that's something we can certainly treat with probiotics and a healthy diet so that we don't feed the wrong bacteria um, and we don't allow a child to become constipated and things like that. Um, also, a very high protein intake leads to a high ammonia production. And for some kids, that's fine. But for many kids with this particular problem, that will actually make them worse. So you might be gluten and dairy-free, but if your child has this issue and is eating a lot of meat, that might not work for that child, even though you're religiously following the gluten and dairy restriction. So it's just very complicated. But I think that for some of the kids, that kind of testing makes a lot of sense and is leading to some ways we can help more and more children, especially the ones who didn't respond as well as we'd like to the first-line therapies. Dr. Snyder, in my my knowledge of um, genetic testing, it's something that you never want to run through insurance. Is that the case? No, I wouldn't either. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to make sure that's the case in the type that you're recommending as well. Um, it is because we can't predict the future. We really don't know how insurance companies or future employers will translate this information when our children are older. And I always operate on the assumption that these children are going to be um, recovered to some degree, hopefully um, a great degree, and have a, a, a fairly normal life and be employed and have a family and so forth, this kind of information could be used in the wrong hands, could be used against them. Um, because, honestly, you know, I think all of us who deal with these families realize that there's a very high incidence of autoimmune disease and a high incidence of cancer and a high incidence of neurological conditions in the families. And so um, a future employer might not want to take on an employee that has these these issues, even though our entire reason for doing the testing is because it can lead to treatment and it can lead to, I think, even prevention of disease. So my, my point would be to figure out where the weaknesses were because many of them are correctable. And also, I just I it stands to reason that dealing with those issues as early as possible in a person's life would decrease their risk of disease later in life. Yeah. And genetic testing is rarely ever covered anyway by insurance and so this is something I would do off the record, even if it is covered. The other benefit of it, and you were talking about, it can be costly, but it's not something that you have to repeat. Never, so no. That, that's an important piece because if 
So you you do a, a, a detoxification profile, and you have to do it once a month or once a, a year to find <laughs> out how things are changing versus mm-hmm. testing the the genetics on it and knowing exactly mm-hmm. what you're capable of in methylation or your producing production of glutathione. Can you even produce glutathione or things p- based on that? Um, mm-hmm. Knowing that you only have to do that once will really give you a setup for a lifetime. Right. And that does save money in the long run. Right, right. And then, and, and if you look at family history, you can often see which children need that testing because if there's a lot of heart disease or cancer or autoimmune disease or there's neurological diseases such as Parkinson's or Lou Gehrig's or something where there was a, a deterioration in the nervous system, you know those are fragile families and that these kids probably have weaknesses along these pathways that we could address right now and, and hopefully change their lifetime health. That's right. Where do you feel, um, where do you feel autism research is, is leading right now? Well, I want to see it leading to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, that's one area uh, that interests me. Um, but I, I think that finally we have some quality people in the field. For a long time, I was really discouraged about the lack of quality in autism research. I think uh, with places like the Mind Institute at UC Davis, that was also started by four parents. Um, I, I'm, I have the most faith in organizations like that that really have their foundation in the hard work of parents who went into this with 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 the right motivation. Um, where they're they're going to have the resources um, to to do the kinds of studies that need to be done. Um, the charge study that they're doing up there is going to take at least a thousand children and do the proper comprehensive. Um, work up on these kids and follow them for years. You know, that's not something I have the money to do. That's not something that the government has the will to do, um, but it really is something that has to be done for us to um, begin to understand how many kinds of autism there are and how each individual type of autism is best treated and what the prognosis is for those kids, too. Um, So it's called bioprofiling because, in a way, you really have to figure out what are their behaviors, what do their labs look like, what does their genetics look like, um, and, and what is their outcome, and how do they respond to individual therapies? I have other questions, but I want to make sure we get our um, the information about your center and your organizations out to ev- our listeners today. Um, can you give out some websites that? Oh, that would be great. Be important. I, um, our main website is is um, www.centerforautism.org, um, and that's the numeral four, not Center spelled out. Four. Okay, center for numeral four autism.org. Right. Uh-huh. That's our main website, and it's uh, actually a work in progress. But um, and our number they, they is... always are. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, and our phone number is 602-277-2273. Repeat that one more time. 602-277-2273. Great. So it's 277CARE is what it is. Um, and we... Um, you know, the most recent research we've been doing lately has been, um, we just completed a hyperbaric study, but we're only one of several sites, so we're waiting for the other sites to finish because it looks promising in our small group of kids, hyperbaric oxygen um, therapy, and um, uh, so there's there's other things in the works, but I, I think that that was, um, is very promising um, because it not only... Um, helped in terms of language and self-stimulatory behavior. It also helped heal bowel issues that in some kids had been refractory to 
gluten and dairy restrictions and testing for food allergies and taking probiotics and doing all the right things, some of those kids were still very, very ill, and the hyperbaric did seem to help their bowel heal. So um, I think that's a promising area. And as I said, this whole area of the PKU variant and the ammonia issue, ammonia also is reduced during hyperbaric uh, therapy, so I think that's that's a, a possible link there to why it helps. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Snyder, for not only your doing the show today, but for all the work that you're doing. And you have such a wonderful, kind, unselfish mannerism about you that I have to tell you it's just a pleasure to, um, to talk to you, and I'm, I'm glad I know you. So thank you for being a guest today. Well, it's my pleasure. We'll be with you all next week. Um, we have uh, Angie Knight talking about speech therapy next week. I hope you, we'll hear from you soon. Bye-bye. The Sensory Learning Center would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Betsy or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Betsy Hicks.